Well, it's December. Can you believe it? We're reminded of it everywhere we go, aren't we? Every time we get out, drive somewhere, there are decorations up, right? Every, every time we, we go and fight the crowds to get some shopping done, every Walmart trip we make, we're reminded that it is Christmas time. We also are reminded of that when we turn on our TVs, right? There are lots of Christmas specials being played this time of year, lots of, of uh, Christmas movies, classic Christmas movies, great stories that are told each and every year, stories like this one here. It's a Wonderful Life, the story of George Bailey and his, his family and about him thinking that he is wasting his life away in Bedford Falls only to discover that he's made a huge impact in so many lives. And uh, stories like this one here, A Christmas Carol, based upon the uh, book by Charles Dickens. This is the story of the miserly, miserable old sinner named Ebenezer Scrooge, who is reminded of the dangers of being mastered by money and the joy of being benevolent toward others. Great stories, right? There are lots of great Christmas stories, stories about friends and, and, and family, love stories, stories about being thankful for what you have and being benevolent with what you have been given. And, and be honest, we love a great story, don't we? We especially love a great Christmas story. Whether it's one of these or a, a personal story being told by a family member of a Christmas from long ago or a, a Christmas movie like the ones we just talked about that we watch every year or, or maybe even a, a, a classic Christmas story that we read together as a family. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. This morning, we are beginning a three-week Christmas series for the next three weeks we're going to be talking about the first and greatest Christmas story. And though I know that many of you have heard this story over and over again, year after year, so many times that you think there is nothing new you can learn from it. My prayer is as we meet together over these next three weeks and as I share with you this Christmas story again, that you would hear it afresh, as if you're hearing it for the first time, and that you would discover new truths from this great old story. Our Christmas series this year is entitled, Our Amazing Messiah. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that often gets overlooked this time of year, and it's the first passage in Matthew about our Jesus, our amazing Messiah's amazing genealogy. Though people pass right over this section of Scripture, Matthew, believe it or not, has quite a bit to say about Christ in the first 17 verses of Matthew 1 that we're going to be looking at this morning. Those of you who read ahead this week, probably thinking to yourself as you read, what on earth is Graham going to do with this passage of Scripture? Let's be honest. At, at first glance, there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on, but boy, let me tell you, there is. There is more than enough here and then some. What we're going to discover this morning is that Matthew 
is telling us some very important things about Jesus in this first section of Scripture as he lists for us those who are in the royal family of Jesus. You know, there have been times when I've been asked by students at the church, both high school and in college, to either write a letter of recommendation for them to a college or a seminary, or I've been asked to be a a reference on their application or their work resume. And when I write those letters, or at times when I receive those phone calls from those employers about that particular student, I will often only share information about that student that is related to the position. For example, when interviewed by a potential employer, I won't tell the employer every detail of that student's life, like when they were born, where they were born, who their parents were, where where they went to preschool, when they lost their first tooth, assuming I even have that information. No, I'll share with them information about that student associated with the job. I, I share information that I know that school or that employer would be concerned with. And I have a clear reason for sharing why uh, I I share what I share. I want to show that that particular student would be a good student or that particular person would be a good employee for the job. And I say all that to say this. That's what Matthew's doing here in his gospel, especially in this first passage. In Matthew 1, in verses 1 through 17, Matthew is trying to convey a specific message about the Lord Jesus. He has a specific purpose in mind for sharing what he does. He doesn't give us in his gospel every little detail about Jesus. In fact, he leaves a lot out. But he gives us what we need to know what he wants us to know and ultimately what God wants us to know, right? Because he's inspired the very words. And what he shares with us is truly amazing. This morning, we're going to examine Jesus's amazing lineage in Matthew 1 and then discuss several truths we learn from it. Let me begin first by reading this passage to you. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nahashan. And Nahashan, the father of Salmon. These will all be on the quiz later, okay? So pay attention. Verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. 
And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right. Why do we have all this? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't practice that at all before this. Why do we have all that? Well, I, I'll tell you. Matthew's audience, the, the group of individuals he is writing to in his gospel are Jewish Christians. Many, many believe it was written to the Jewish Christians in Antioch because there were a significant number of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians in that area at this time when this book was written. And he is writing for the purpose of showing his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the promised one who has come to save and... He is the victorious king who will return. And he knew, Matthew knew, that the Jews at this time were insistent that if anyone was going to be presented to them as being someone important, they better have the pedigree to prove it. Now, why did it matter to the Jews who your dad or granddad was? Well, there are several reasons scripturally the first reason we find in the old testament in the old testament a knowledge of ancestry was needed so that one knew where they were supposed to live remember in the book of joshua after entering the land of canaan the land was divided up into tribal units so it was essential that you knew what tribe you were in so you knew where you were supposed to live Another reason pedigree was important in the Old Testament was to know who the priests were. When the Jews began to come back from Babylonian captivity, many of them were claiming to be priests. So it was important that they could prove it by pedigree because God was serious about who the priests were. If anyone was trying to assume the role of priest, who was not from the tribe of Levi, they would be in grave danger. So when the Jews came back from captivity, they had to prove who they were by what family they were born into before they could assume a role like priest. 
And this lineal identification carries on into the first century. Though tribal division of land had ceased at this time, the Jews still had a thorough knowledge of their their lineage. And we know this because individuals throughout the New Testament are either identified or they make mention of their pedigree. For example, Paul lets us know in the book of Philippians that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. And we learn in the Christmas story that we're going to look at that Mary and Joseph are traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the reason why is because we're told there was a census that was taking place. In those days at this time, people were required to report to the area of their ancestors, the the husband and father's ancestor, to be registered for tax purposes. So Mary and Joseph returned to Bethlehem because Joseph is from the family of David. So pedigree was important in the Old Testament for tribal location, for priestly identification, and was important in the New Testament for tax purposes. Another reason genealogy was meaningful to the Jews in the first century is because it told a lot about the individual. Have you ever asked the question, who's his daddy? You ever asked that? Who's who's her mama? You know, we want to know what family these kids are from to know a little bit more about the kid. And the the Jews were, were that way as well. Matthew knows this. And for this reason, he establishes where Jesus came from, the family he came from in the first 17 verses. He gives this list to reveal to his Jewish audience who he is. So this morning, we're going to discuss this passage that Matthew gives us here in Matthew 1. There are four key truths we learn about Jesus' genealogy that makes this message and this passage so amazing. Number one, we learn from this list of Jesus' ancestors that he is the promised one from old. He is the Messiah. Now we're going to camp out here for a little bit because this is one of Matthew's main reasons for establishing Jesus' pedigree here. He wants to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. And notice he makes the point at the beginning and the end of the passage. They serve as bookends on this passage. In the very first verse of this book, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ And again, in verse 17, he refers to Jesus as the Christ. Right here, at the beginning of the book, Matthew affirms that Jesus is the Christ, which is another way of saying he is the Messiah. The word Christ means anointed one. And it's actually the Greek translation of the word Messiah, okay? He's indicating here, by calling him the Christ, he is the one who is sent by God to bring salvation. Not only does he say that, but he proves it by listing Jesus' royal lineage. He makes the point in verse 1 that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why does he single out these two individuals? Believers, many of you should know, right? 
should be obvious to us. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made to these two individuals. Let's first look at David. That's where Matthew begins. What was promised to David? Do you remember? Look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13 up on the screen. Read this with me. Listen to the promise made to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promised to put on David's throne a son who would rule forever and ever. And you know and I know that wasn't fulfilled in Solomon, right? It wasn't. As glorious and majestic as his rule was, it was also pretty messed up as well. But he died, right? He was not fulfillment of that promise. It was not fulfilled in any of the other kings from this dynasty. They each reigned for a time and then they died and their power transferred to someone else. The fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 is Christ. Matthew also says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Matthew, again, is reminding us here of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the substitution provided on Mount Moriah when the ram was caught in the thicket bush and substituted for for Isaac. You'll read about it in your study guide this week. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the perfect substitute and sacrifice for Jews and Gentiles alike. It's also through him that all nations of the earth will be blessed. Remember God promised that to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is is the fulfillment of that. So Matthew is showing his audience by referring to Jesus as the son of David, son of Abraham, and then listing his lineage from Abraham to David, from David to Joseph, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all the promises made to these two men. He fulfills these promises by his lineage, by his person, by his work. Now get this, this is key. Unlike in the first century, Jews today have lost all record of their tribal ancestry. They have. They they can't trace it at all. It's completely gone. There is no one today who can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're descendants of David or or of, of Benjamin or of Judah or any of the other tribes. That's all been lost. Not true of Jesus. No one in the first century would have disputed or questioned his lineage. It was verifiable. You know, there are some Orthodox Jews today who are still waiting for a Messiah to come. Others have completely abandoned that altogether. But the ones waiting for a Messiah to come, they have rejected Jesus and they're looking for another. Now, I want you to get this. This is key. If anyone came along today claiming to be the Messiah by being a descendant of Abraham and David, he would never be able to prove it. Jesus is the last verifiable claimant to David's throne. No one else 
can come along and lay any believable claim to it. Now, there's another thing here that is extremely important and interesting about Jesus' lineage that I want to share with you. And believe me, this is worth you coming in today, okay? Watch this. In two of the four Gospels, we are given Jesus' lineage. Matthew starts with Abraham and ends with Jesus. And Luke begins with Jesus, goes past Abraham all the way back to Adam. Matthew gives us the royal line of Jesus through Joseph. Luke, I believe, gives us the bloodline of Jesus through Mary. Now, some argue against this. They, they argue against the lineage and Luke being the bloodline through Mary because Mary is not mentioned. Instead, Luke mentions Joseph again. But the problem in saying that this is Joseph's lineage in Luke is that the genealogy is different. From, from Matthew, I believe the reason Mary is not mentioned in Luke 3 is because she has already been designated the mother of Jesus in several instances, so it's implied here. Also, it is the usual practice when listing one's genealogy to mention the name of the father. So Luke mentions Joseph here, even though he's already made it clear that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. And when he gives the name of Joseph's father-in-law, Heli, what Luke is saying in Luke 3, 23, is that Jesus is the son of Joseph, the grandson of Heli, Mary's father. Got it? You with me? Okay. So... Matthew gives the royal line in, in Matthew 1. Luke gives the bloodline in Luke 3. And notice they both go back through David, but they go through a different son. That's another reason. It's David's son, Nathan, that's the bloodline of Mary, and it's David's son, Solomon. That's the royal line of, of Joseph. You can look at it later on. If you want some more reading on this, I have an article that you'll find in the foyer as you leave today, and Linda or one of our greeters will get you one if you want it by John MacArthur on the uh, two lineages of Jesus. It's a, it's a short read, but very interesting. The royal line always passed through the Father. So in Matthew's gospel, he shows us the legal descent of Jesus as the king of Israel. Now, the reason I say, again, legal descent is because Jesus had no earthly father biologically. Joseph was his father legally, but not biologically because he was miraculously conceived, right? And, and virgin born. We're going to talk about that in the next two weeks. So though Jesus is the legal heir to his kingdom through his father, he did not have ties to most of the individuals in Matthew's list biologically. He did, however, have blood ties to those in Mary's list that goes back to David as well in Luke. See, David had a number of kids, like we said. One was Nathan. Luke shows us Mary was a descendant of David's son, Nathan. Jesus had blood ties to David through Mary, royal ties to David, legally through Joseph. Still with me? Are you? Okay. If not, we got an article out there, okay? Let me tell you why this is important. We read about, when we read about the royal family in Matthew 1, there's a name that doesn't stand out to us, but it should, and it's the name Jeconiah, a.k.a. Coniah Jehoiakim. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, we're told this about good old Jeconiah. Look at it with me. 
Is this man, Coniah, despised? Broken pot, a vessel no one cares for. Now, the person called Coniah here, also referred to in some of your translations as Jehoiakim, is Jeconiah. So he's talking, about, he's talking about Jeconiah here. Skip down to verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Jeconiah is the last direct heir to the Jewish crown. Okay? And he says here, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, folks, that's a problem. If the covenant God made with David promises a future forever king and Jeconiah's offspring is cursed and none are going to be allowed to sit on the throne of David, then how in the world can we have a future Messiah? Now watch this, because Jesus is virgin born. He is not an offspring of Jeconiah. He is legally in the royal line, but he has no biological ties to him. So Jesus has no biological ties to the royal line, yet he is legally a royal, and he is also a descendant of David by blood through his mother. Is that not incredible? It's what I call perfect fulfillment. Isn't it incredible how God takes care of every single detail? He does. It's amazing. Jesus is the Messiah, no matter which way you slice it. That's what Matthew is telling us here. But not only that, he also tells us this, another amazing truth about Jesus from his genealogy. We see that Jesus is completely God. That's the next point. We learn from this passage, not only is he the Messiah, he is God. Now, you're probably wondering, Graham, where'd you get that? I know where you can get it other places, but, but where here? Well, you got to read it closely. Look at verse 16. Matthew says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. Now, notice carefully how Matthew states that. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, that of whom is feminine it's a reference to mary jesus was born who is called the christ matthew is making the point i believe subtly here god is making the point through matthew that though jesus is again in a legal sense the son of joseph he only has ties biologically to his mother he was miraculously conceived without joseph's involvement and and this miraculous extraordinary conception points to Jesus' divine origins and his divine character. Now, Matthew's going to expand upon this a little later in the chapter, but he and others indicate that Jesus' virgin birth point to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is the eternal Son of God who left the riches of heaven, came to earth in a miraculous and extraordinary way. He was miraculously conceived and born to live among us. Not only does Matthew show us in this passage that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is divine, but he also shows us in this passage that Jesus is a man. 
That too is amazing. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is completely man. How does he show us this? Verse 16 again. Jesus was born. Now, when we think about Jesus' birth, we normally think virgin birth, and that causes us to think miracle. Many think the virgin birth is a sign of Jesus' deity, but the birth is actually a sign of his humanity. What's miraculous is not the birth, it's the conception, okay? The virgin conception, that's what we discussed in the previous point. Jesus' conception was a miracle. Once he's conceived, he really goes on to have a natural, normal childbirth, minus the barn and the animals, right? And I know I'm splitting hairs here, and when people talk about the miracle of the virgin birth, they're referring to the entire process, right? From conception to birth. But I want to make this distinction. And the reason why is because Jesus is truly human. He was born of a woman. He was in the bloodline of Mary. The fact that he doesn't have a biological father reveals his deity. But the fact that he has a biological mother reveals his humanity. So, so Matthew is showing us through Jesus' birth in the family of David, through the bloodline of Mary, Jesus is a man. Matthew also shows us by listing out Jesus' royal line, fourth and finally, that Jesus is Savior. Jesus is our present Savior. Believe it or not, the genealogy is designed to show us this truth about Christ. He is the redeemer of all kinds and types of people, of women, of men, Jew and Gentile. Have you ever looked at this genealogy? It's, it's a pretty dysfunctional family, if you've ever had one. In it, you have men like Abraham and David, who were good, righteous men, but they had their issues. Though Abraham is known for, for his faith, he also lacked faith at times. He got ahead of God, which messed up things majorly. David, though he was a man after God's own heart, was also a man after another man's wife. He was an adulterer. Then you got guys like Ahaz in here who have no redeeming qualities. You got a guy like Judah, remember Judah? Though he, like Reuben, spoke out for his brother and talked him out of killing Joseph, it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery, nice guy. In Genesis 37, you have Tamar mentioned here in verse 3. In Genesis 38, we learn that she was Judah's daughter-in-law who disguised herself as a prostitute and prostituted herself out to Judah, her own father-in-law. Prostitution, sexual immorality. And after, out of this sexually immoral act, she has twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez is in the royal lineage. You have women like Rahab. Remember Rahab? She was a harlot, a professional prostitute. Now, what on earth are these types of people doing in the, in the family of Jesus? You also had a woman like Ruth. Some of you are like, well, what's wrong with Ruth? Ruth was a good woman. I agree with you, but she was a Moabite. Remember the story of the Moabites? These are people who respond out of incest. Remember Lot's daughters got him drunk and they laid with him, and the oldest had a son from her father, named him Moab. 
From that group of people come the Moabites. Ruth was a Moabite. She was from a group of people who were born out of incest. Again, what in the world are they doing in the family of Jesus? Notice how Matthew comments on Solomon here in verse 6. He says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. How about that? Now, why didn't he just say Bathsheba? We know it's Bathsheba because Matthew is emphasizing the scandalous way in which Solomon's parents got together. We just talked about it. Remember, David got Uriah's wife pregnant, then tried to cover it up by having Uriah killed. You don't even need to be a Christian to know that that's messed up, right? Adultery and and murder. Now, there's more I can mention, but you get the point. But Matthew shows us here through this list that our God is a redeeming God and that Jesus is our Savior. He has come to right these wrongs. He has come to reverse the curse. He has come to fix our mess. To restore and redeem that which we have broken. To restore this broken lineage. This broken and fallen people. He reminds us here that our God is at work through the acts of the righteous and the wicked. He's at work through the faithfulness of Abraham, the failures of David. He's at work through godly kings like David and Josiah and Hezekiah and through godless leaders like Rehoboam and Ahaz. Through the acts of his patriarchs and through the acts of godless kings and harlots, God brings Christ into the world through that to restore and redeem it and to bring sinful individuals like these and like you and me back into a right relationship with the living God. With this list, Matthew reminds us that the good and the not so good, both the moral and the wicked, all need saving. Believers, a Savior has been provided. A Savior has come to bring life to all those who believe on him. So as the Christmas season approaches, let us think primarily on this. Let us think primarily on the gospel. Let us be reminded throughout this Christmas season of the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is completely God. He is completely man. He is Emmanuel, as we sang earlier, God with us, the one who came from heaven to earth, who took on flesh, lived among us, died for us, and rose so that he might raise us. If you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I pray God opens your heart to this Christmas message this morning. In this passage and in the passages we'll look at in the next few weeks, Matthew and Luke tell us there is a time in history when Jesus, God the Son, the eternal Son of God, stepped into our world, took on flesh, and became one of us. Though he had every right to remain where he was in the state he was in, though Christ did not have to do anything for us, he chose to do everything for us. He went as far as giving his life away. He took the punishment of sin that we deserve, and he did all of that so that we might have life. If you're here this morning, you're not trusting Christ alone for your salvation, I pray you would this morning. Pray you would make this decision to turn from your sin and run to Christ, cling to Christ, 
place your faith and trust in him and in him alone and be saved. Would you pray with me?